This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Good news for a change. Number of cases and people in the hospital across the U.S. dropping. Infection rates are down. Deaths starting to decline. All this happening without a major new lockdown. A lot of places are open, so we'll look into whether the trend continues. Calls are growing to delay the second Pfizer dose. We'll tell you why. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been called a game changer because it's only one dose, but uh, maybe it's also going to be two. We'll explain that. The pandemic is lowering life expectancy. We'll get into that. But we start with the declining COVID numbers. Dr. Michael Minna, epidemiologist, immunologist, the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, member of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. A doctor, why are these numbers dropping? You're asking a very difficult question, I would say, uh, and one that is uh, still, uh, it's puzzling most epidemiologists uh, around the world. Uh, there, are, there are different uh, opinions. Uh, one that I would say we are uh, likely feeling actually some of the benefits of a, of a large fraction of the community that has been infected or now uh, thankfully vaccinated. Uh, our best estimates are something uh, as much as a third or potentially even more of Americans, for example, have already been infected. And this can lead to some level of what we call herd immunity. Uh, and so that might be playing a role. Seasonality. We know that coronavirus is normally spike uh, to very high numbers uh, in, in pr- past years with the seasonal coronaviruses, and then they drop sharply at around the time when we're seeing this virus. So there might be some seasonal effects uh, as well that are playing a role. Uh, there are also uh, some behavioral changes that might be occurring as a result of coming down off of the holidays. Uh, although my personal opinion is that I, I don't believe that the behavioral changes could necessarily uh, be explaining the sharp declines that we're seeing all across uh, the United States and elsewhere. Yeah, I was going to ask about that third one, because that was one of the theories that I was reading going into this was, you know, it got so bad over the holidays, maybe some people did think, okay, it's not the time to go out. So now we have to wait to see what happened after, you know, Super Bowl gatherings, if we see those. I mean, we're not out of the woods yet. Cases are still high, but we have come down substantially from when it was the worst it was, you know, December into Mm -hmm. January. Uh, absolutely. And we, and we, uh, my, my hope is that we are actually seeing the seasonal benefits of, uh, the seasonality come into, into play here. And, uh, what I, uh, expect is that now, as long as we can, we can keep riding this wave down, uh, and ideally keep cases at a fairly low number, uh, throughout the whole of the summer, for example. And this, you know, my, my hope is that we can buy ourselves some time to really build up Uh, do what we should have done last summer, which is build up good surveillance and and testing protocols and ensure that as we enter back into the fall of 2021, we'll be much better prepared than we have been. But are you taking into account all of these variants that we keep talking about, the the one found in Britain, the one found in uh, uh, Brazil, the one found in South Africa? There are, I think, what, six or seven ones here in the state of California, who knows how many more are really out there. Could any one of these or combination of these totally change this picture for the worse? Uh, yes. Uh, the short answer is uh, this is this should be very, very worrying to, uh, to us. I mean, as epidemiologists and public health officials, we need to be taking this with the absolute uh, 
uh, utmost of urgency to deal with these variants. We need to anticipate, in fact, and expect that these are going to take over. And we have to keep planning accordingly. Uh, what I just said about cases continuing to drop and kind of plateau down at a lower number for quite a while and then come back in the fall, that is kind of best case scenario. Uh, what I'm particularly concerned about is we will continue to see new variants, some that can evade our immune systems, maybe evade the immunity given to us by the vaccines. And we need to take all of this into account in a very serious way and ensure that should that happen, we are prepared in a way that so far we unfortunately haven't been throughout this pandemic. Dr. Michael Minna, epidemiologist, immunologist, Harvard Chan School of Public Health. A debate is getting a little louder about whether to delay the second round of Pfizer vaccine shots. The idea is that the first dose provides enough immunity and the priority should be on vaccinating as many people as possible as quickly as possible. New study from the New England Journal of Medicine confirms the first dose provides high immunity levels. Dr. Danuta Skowroski, epidemiology, lead of influenza and emerging respiratory pathogens at the British Columbia Center for Disease Control Studies co-author. Doctor, what did you find about postponing that second dose? I think what our uh, paper unveils very importantly is the swift and substantial protection that both mRNA vaccines, in particular the Pfizer vaccine as described in our letter, but also the Moderna vaccine, uh, the swift and substantial protection that even just a single dose of vaccine provides. And that's very important information in the context of scarce vaccine supply and still elevated epidemic activity. So the idea being the first one gives you a major jump ahead. The second one boosts that. But if we're going to cover all these groups with such a short supply, the first one is probably, what, good enough? Well, the, the second dose gives very little added protection in the short term compared to the first dose. You know, there's basically three fundamentals of vaccinology that I don't think have been adequately conveyed to the general public and that are underpinning the analysis that we present. The first is vaccine does not work uh, instantaneously when you administer it. It usually takes a couple of weeks to activate the immune response. And when Pfizer reported their first dose efficacy, they did not take that into account. Typically, we would give a grace period of at least two weeks for the immune system to become activated before we started to expect reduction in vaccine protection. And that's what we've taken into account in our reanalysis showing rather than 50% protection with the first dose. In fact, the efficacy is greater than 90%. The second point is, and this is just a basic fundamental of vaccinology, that longer intervals between the first and the second dose are generally preferred. We would rather give a longer uh, interval between the first and second dose because that usually results in higher antibodies uh, over the long run. And the only reason we would give a shorter, uh, a second dose in a shorter time frame would be if we didn't believe that the first dose kicked in and gave substantial protection uh, early on. And what we are showing is that we're getting more than 90% protection even with the first dose. So administering a second dose over a longer period would actually be preferred. And the third fundamental is that when protection wanes from 
vaccination, it doesn't fall off a cliff. It's a gradual waning over time, which means we have time to evaluate how long lasting that first dose protection is. But if we do not uh, defer second doses and are doubling back to reimmunize with very little added benefit, in the meantime, we're talking about very many high risk susceptible individuals being left completely unprotected. And that means, well, in the US, uh, as we wrote in our letter over this coming uh, winter, uh, you would have thousands of hospitalizations and deaths that should be considered vaccine preventable because a first dose of vaccine could have prevented those in that completely vulnerable population otherwise. Let me ask you this question. Uh, is your analysis based on the way the vaccine deals with, and let's, for the sake of clarity, we'll call it the original uh, uh, version of the coronavirus uh, that caused the pandemic. Uh, would it be a different analysis if one takes into account one of these variants in particular? I'm thinking the Brazilian or South uh, African one that people seem to be the most concerned about. Yes, this is a reanalysis of the data that Pfizer prevented, uh, presented themselves uh, in their New England paper and also to the FDA. So it's based on that initial Wuhan 1 uh, coronavirus. Uh, we cannot speak to the first dose or second dose vaccine effectiveness yet against those variants. But if we want to minimize the risk of those variants, the most important thing is to get protection uh, into the population, as much of the population as possible, as swiftly as possible. And like I say, continue to evaluate in the field what that vaccine effectiveness against the variants may be. But, you know, we're talking theoreticals uh, related to potential uh, variant protection, but uh, we have a real uh, 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 and present danger uh, with uh, leaving so many individuals unprotected by choosing to administer a second dose that is adding little benefit in the short term. Yeah, I guess the first goal is, you know, give the virus, whatever it is, fewer places to go. Dr. Danuta Skobronski, epidemiologist, British Columbia Center for Disease Control. The hope is that once the Johnson & Johnson vaccine arrives, it will speed up vaccinations, but there are some problems. First, lagging production. Second, maybe it's going to be two doses now. Josh Wingrove covers the White House and coronavirus from Bloomberg. So, Josh, what does this latest news mean in terms of getting the vaccine eventually approved and then moved out? Basically nothing. I think it caught some people by surprise, but they've announced this before, and Moderna and Pfizer are looking at the same thing, and that's whether they can develop a booster shot maybe down the road, but it wouldn't change the EUA approval that they're waiting for the one-shot dose. And you're right, that that would be a real game-changer if Johnson & Johnson is approved, which could come here you know, in just a couple of weeks, or authorized, I should say, because it's just much easier to ship. It doesn't have to be as cold as the other shots, which is you know, a big deal. And of course, you only need to get one, which means you don't have to worry about getting people back to the doctor or the pharmacy or wherever the heck they're getting it. So that that's important. But all of them are looking at whether a booster shot would help, in particular against these new variants that we're seeing, which are more contagious, uh, you know, both in the U.S. and abroad. Isn't there some uh, some problems? Aren't they having Johnson & Johnson, that is, some manufacturing issues? And haven't they had that all along? Yeah, I mean, they and everyone else seems to be having this. We expected 12 million doses by the end of February from Johnson Johnson. Of course, they might only actually be approved 
at the very end of February, the beginning of March. And instead, we're only going to get a few million doses. Now, they haven't really said why that is. They say that they're still going to give 100 million doses by the end of June. Again, 100 million doses, of course, enough for 100 million people. Whereas the other shipments with from the other two, you got to divide by two for how many people. The bottom line is the U.S., if, big if, if these companies hit their targets, if things go smoothly and they've missed a lot of targets to date, so who knows. But if they have, then by the end of July, and if, if Johnson Johnson is approved, then you're going to have 400 million people's worth of doses delivered to the U.S. Now, again, big ifs. They, everything's got to go sort of smoothly to make that happen. But the U.S., you can see, by mid-year, could be in a position where it certainly has as much or even way more vaccine than it could possibly use. Remember, we're not supposed to be vaccinating kids, anyone under 16. Right now, the data just is inconclusive yet on whether they're going to do that and when. I guess we can use that, though, as a jumping off point and just fast forward maybe a month's time. When we get to March, it's still going to be pretty dry for a lot of people trying to go out and find one of these. I mean, we have plenty of problems here. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that that's true. You know, I think there will be sort of a 20 million doses shipped a week range probably by March. Right now we're at about 15. So, you know, it's it's moving in the right directions. We all know people who've gotten it and we've all know people who are desperate to get it. Um, I think that, you know, uh, Tony Fauci, Anthony Fauci, the, uh, you know, who's advising the president on this, of course, ubiquitous face in the early response of this, he's talked about what's called open season. That's when, you know, the sort of criteria and categories are just thrown out the door and anyone who wants one can get one. He used to say that that's April, but because of the Johnson & Johnson delays, it's now looking maybe more like May. So, you know, anyone who's planning something for early May might need to adjust based on that. But that's the sort of sweet spot. It's May, June, July. That's when you're going to start to see really huge you know, spikes, 25 million shipments a week, week after week, if things go to plan, that's when I think the vast majority of Americans, as opposed to the most at risk, would really have a lot more of an easy time getting their shot. Josh Wingrove covers the White House and the virus for Bloomberg. Josh, thanks. Coming up after this short break, the pandemic is taking a year off of everyone's lives. Health officials say life expectancy in the U.S. dropped by one year during the first half of 2020, and they are blaming the pandemic. And that was just the first. Maybe it drops some more later. Robert Anderson, chief of the Mortality Statistics Branch, the CDC. So, Robert, maybe it doesn't mean that I die a year sooner, or Charles does, or you do. But on average, all of this coming down a year, that's a big thing, right? Yeah, it's a pretty big deal on a population level. I mean, a year doesn't sound uh, like a lot, but, but it really is. It's, it's huge. We haven't seen a decline like this in life expectancy since uh, uh, 1943 um, during uh, World War II. And is this uh, primarily because of COVID? Is it because people are dying uh, earlier from other diseases because they have neglected them also because of COVID? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a combination of the two. I mean, it's primarily COVID that, uh, that's causing this. I mean, we've had uh, about 500,000 more deaths in 2020 than we had in 2019. And, and most of those are COVID deaths. And most of those extra deaths are COVID deaths. Uh, some of them are I mean, uh, you know, deaths due to other causes. We are seeing increases uh, in 2020 for cardiovascular diseases, 
uh, diabetes, uh, dementia, and, and drug overdoses as well. But it's it's mostly COVID. About two thirds of that five hundred thousand, at least for and twenty twenty, is COVID. I guess it could still get worse as we move on through this. Although things, hopefully, fingers crossed, are are getting better at least these days. Yeah, hopefully, um, it, it appears that uh, cases are certainly on the decline. Uh, deaths may also be on the decline, although the deaths tend to lag the cases by a few weeks. Um, it's things are looking better, certainly uh, for 2021, but uh, you know I don't think uh, we should relax at this point. Minorities suffering more from this impact in terms of longevity, life expectancy. Uh, why? Yeah, that's uh, you know it's certainly um, the case for life expectancy, and we've seen this uh, with regard to the COVID data as well. That uh, minority groups, particularly the non-Hispanic, Black, and the Hispanic populations, um, have been uh, more likely to die uh, from COVID uh, than, uh, than than the white population, and and this is uh, you know that that's borne out in in the life expectancy numbers as well. And reasonings, they vary, right? And a lot's been written about this and will continue to be until we can do something about it. But in many cases, frontline jobs or low-wage jobs, crowded environments for some people, pre-existing conditions for others, or a mix of all of that, and you've got yourself a really bad situation. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and you know, and it's, I think, worth noting that, um, you know, when you have changes um, to the younger population... Uh, it has you know, changes to mortality for the younger population. You have uh, it has a bigger impact on life expectancy than if the changes are at the older population. And because a lot of the folks who are dying in these minority groups are um, are younger, um, their uh, their life expectancy numbers are uh, uh, disproportionately affected. Do we know whether these figures uh, match? other industrialized Western countries? Are we alone in this or, or what? Well, I mean, we've done um, uh, a little work to compare with, uh, um, you know, some of the European countries and some other countries out there. Um, you know, there are a lot of countries in the world that don't have good data. Um, but for those countries that have good data, you know, it shows that, you know, they're, they're dealing with much the same issues that we are. Um, you know, we seem to have it uh, somewhat worse um, than, than some of these European countries, um, you know, especially countries like Denmark or Germany, which uh, seem to have avoided the worst um, cases. But then you have other countries like Belgium and Spain and, uh, and the UK, which have had, um, you know, quite substantial problems. Some d- the pandemic. Sometimes it's hard to see things when you're in the, the midst of it and, you know, you're doing your best crunching the numbers. But when the book on COVID is written 10, 20 years from now, what do you hope shakes out by then that you can go back and look at? Well, we hope to sort of shake things out a little early, you know, a little sooner than, you know, a decade from now. But, um, you know, I think as we as we put together the final numbers on this and as we um, analyze things, I think it'll, it'll give us um, at least a, a sort of a template to follow in the future if something like this happens uh, again. Now, hopefully, you know, we're it's another hundred years before we see a major pandemic like this. Uh, but you never know. Uh, and, and we do need to be prepared. The underfunding of public health departments has been a big problem. Does this jog our memories that 
we can't let that happen again because there's a difference between you know prevention and treatment right you can get treatment to people uh hopefully if they get sick but you have to cut it off at the pass before you even get to that point with a lot of these conditions not just covid but you know keeping people alive through heart disease yeah this is uh, i mean it's, we're getting a little outside my wheelhouse i'm a statistician but uh uh, you know, you do have to have the infrastructure in place if you want uh, to uh, to have a good result. Robert Anderson there, chief of the mortality statistics branch at the CDC. Your breath is the latest indicator if you have COVID-19, and it could lead to new screening tools. Researchers in the Netherlands took breath samples from people and taught a machine called the E-Nose what the breath profile of a COVID-19 patient would be like. They say the concept is similar to how your nose can distinguish the smell of coffee from the smell of tea. The device was able to reliably rule out infection with or without symptoms in 70 to 75 percent of all people tested, with results available within seconds. In cases in which the e-nose can't reliably rule out the virus, patients can undergo traditional throat swabbing Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.